HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Nine times out of ten, when someone is taking the time to break away and do their own thing, it's because they either have a specific point of view or a specific passion that really sort of speaks to maybe not a mass audience, but the customers that I have and the customers at Barterhouse tries to culture and, and cultivate, I think are, are, are those type of people who want that story and feel like if they take a, an allocation of an 80-case made wine, that they've got something special and it's something that only they have or maybe one other person has. So that's kind of what we specialize in. And you know, it may not be business savvy to the nth degree, like we're not making 100,000 cases of Pinot Grigio and you know, flogging them all over New York. But the customers that get wine from us are kind of believing the same stuff we do, which is supporting these small farms, supporting these young winemakers who have a passion for doing it. And, and we supply them with a market and we allow them to get their product out there to otherwise an untapped group of people. Welcome to Cooking Issues Radio uh, on the Heritage Radio Network, the show where you call in with all your cooking questions. I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues, here with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez, the driver of the technological bus. All right. Uh, call in all your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. We'll be here for about the next 45 minutes. Nastasha, here we already have a caller, yeah? Yeah, we do. Nice. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hello, uh, this is Obi. I'm all the way out in Tucson, Arizona. Nice. Um, uh, a couple of questions. Uh, I've got a CVAP. I'm, I'm a chef, uh, and we, we got a CVAP in our kitchen not too long ago. Um, and we've done a couple things, a couple cool things with it. Did kind of, uh, uh, you know, we did a 48-hour short rib just the other day, and it turned out really, really good. In the bag or uh, not in the bag? In a bag, okay. in, in a Ziploc, you know, with just a little bit of, uh, a little bit of stock. And it turned out amazing. Nice. It was it was kind of weird because um, the temperature does shift in them. What I had to do was I have a um, I can't remember what model is it the five five oh five hundred something. Yeah, I don't know um, them by model number anyway. I just know them by looking at them. Yeah, the, well, it's I the the thing I had to do was to keep it on um, keep it on the load cycle, like not actually even press cook. 
and uh, it kept the temperature more steady. Oh, that's odd. But, um, yeah. and it, it kept it around between 34, uh, 134 and 136 degrees, and uh, they came out really, really good. Uh, but my question was, I mean, I'm sure you've messed with them a lot, and I was just wondering if there was any other cool things that that uh, that you guys had done with them. Okay, well, that- for, well, just before we get into it, for those who don't know what a CVAP is, for our listeners, a CVAP is a type of uh, uh, oven originally designed to hold, actually, Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was invented by a guy by the name of Winston, uh, actually, for Kentucky Fried Chicken. He was friends with Colonel Sanders, and they built this thing. It's basically a bain-marie in the bottom of a holding oven, and you adjust the water temperature of the bain-marie and the temperature of the oven separately, and you can adjust the humidity in there, and you can keep things uh, you know, nicely for a really, really long time. When uh, the sous vide uh, crackdown happened in New York City with the health department about four or five years ago, uh, CVAPs all of a sudden became very, very popular because chefs could use them to do low-temperature cooking, uh, very accurate low-temperature cooking with fish. Uh, and so, uh, and here's where I get in. That's just the background. Here's where I get into your actual question. A lot of chefs here in New York retrofitted CVAPs into their kitchens because uh, either they couldn't afford a combi oven right away uh, or they couldn't retrofit because of uh, the venting requirements of a combi oven. Uh, CVAP ovens are a lot less expensive than a combi oven, and, and they don't require venting or drains, and they take up a lot less power. And they're fairly accurate, actually. Uh, um, I don't know what's going on with yours, but Nathan Mirvold and Chris Young, who are coming out with the Uber Tech book at the end of this year, have done uh, independent tests on CVAPs, and they hold about two degrees, well, plus or minus two degrees uh, accuracy uh, over the long haul. And I think they, they're slightly better now than they used to be. It depends a lot on the temperature and the size of the oven you're using. Smaller ovens, obviously, more accurate. Or not obviously, but they are. And uh, the uh, So one thing I really recommend you try out there is fish, not in the bag. So you can do really quick work with fish. You know, you set the temperature 10, uh, 15 degrees higher than you want the fish to go. And, you know, you, depending on the size of the portion, you're looking at like a 10 to 12-minute uh, cook time in, in the CVAP. And a lot of chefs in New York move to this because they're not allowed to cook fish in the bag. So the CVAP is very, very good at low-temperature work, uh, direct service, low-temperature work, not in the bag. The one thing you have to worry is when you open and close it a lot, it starts sucking a little bit of wind, and you're going to have to increase your cook times a little bit. Um, yeah, I you know, that. It's also good for hamburgers, anything like that that you want to keep. Now, I don't really like yeah, this. we did hamburgers. Hamburgers worked great in it. Yeah. Hamburgers were awesome. I mean, you have to post-sear them because things lose the texture on the outside in, uh, in a CVAP after they've been sitting there a while. But uh, Howard Richardson, who's the guy at the company that you're going to want to talk to if you have any problems, he's the rep. His favorite demo in, uh, you know, when he goes out to the NRA, the National Restaurant Show, not the National Rifle Association Show, is uh, to hold tortilla chips in him because you can use them actually with, in very low humidity uh, circumstances to keep stuff hot without drying out. It's completely counterintuitive that you could have a water bath in the bottom of something and hold tortilla chips in it. But Yeah, they were talking about, when I first bought it, they were talking about how good steam is like dry steam. Well, yeah, it's not this dry steam is really just hot steam, so it's not. Uh, yeah. so not this is it's it's different. It's literally setting the humidity level. But uh, I plan on doing a lot on CVAPs in our next uh, installment of the uh, low temperature primer. If I ever write it, Nastasha's rolling her eyes at me right now <laughs> because I've been very far behind. But uh, I guess we'll be coming oh, we back. Came to, up, what we came up with a beautiful prime rib. I mean, we've we've been trying. I've, I don't know how many prime ribs I've put through it, and we came up with a formula that pr- produces an awesome prime rib. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's fantastic at those kind of things. It's very economical to run. Uh, but, you know, what you should do uh, phone in with some more specific ones next week. I'm going to think more about specific CVAPs as I think more about uh, recipes. But it's definitely a very important piece of equipment. It's becoming very, very popular. Thanks so much for your call. We have another caller? Yeah, on? we do. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, this is Corbin from San Diego. Hey, Corbin, how you doing? Good. 
Um, so I recently had an opportunity to pick up a used VWR circulator from a uh, university surplus auction. <laughs> I, I got it real cheap. It was only like $50. But now I'm trying to figure out how to sterilize it, clean it, and go through it and make sure all the key components are still working. Do you, do you have any recommendations? Yeah, do you know what kind of lab it was in? Um, I don't. They don't have any information like that. Okay. Um, so most like, did it have a lot of oil deposits on it or no? It's pretty clean, but the, the coils have a little bit of like a calcium deposits on it. But other than that, not, not too bad. Okay, so it was probably used in water as opposed to in oil. It's a lot easier to clean that way. Uh, I would suggest... Um, spraying everything with a fairly concentrated bleach solution and then letting that bleach solution soak into the coils. You want to make sure, for first, you actually, you should go over with a toothbrush and get all of the actual deposits. Any deposit that's on the, uh, uh, on the circulator itself is going to harbor uh, evil things even after it's been soaked in bleach, right? So the first thing you want to do is get off any sort of deposits. Then you're going to want to circulate in it uh, like a CLR tablet, which is going to, you know, the, the uh, calcium lime rust remover, and that's going to get yeah. rid of uh, the calcium deposits. And then after that, I would soak it for a while in uh, a fairly concentrated bleach solution, and that's going to kill anything that remains in t- from a biological standpoint. I would wipe down the entire surface of the piece of equipment with, with, uh, with bleach. Uh, you know, try not to, you know, don't have it plugged in. Duh. And, uh, and then, um, you know, f- from there on out after she dries, and if you want, you can circulate it, you know, up to boiling to be darn sure. But at that point, you should have killed everything. Now, uh, how long the circulator is going to last depends on how long it was run and what kind of care they took in it, right? The older circulators have a problem with the bearing. The bearings on them tend to go bad. If she starts to squeak and squeal on you, then you can put some WD uh, – I wouldn't put WD-40 actually because you know it's not food grade. But if you put a food grade lubricant on the bearing, you'll extend the life cycle by a couple of months probably of hard usage. I mean restaurant-style usage. Um, I would also open up the circulator. Are you good with electricity or no? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Okay, open up the back of the circulator. Uh, All of the old circulators have a lot of uh, contact points with spade terminals in them to make electrical connections on the inside of the unit. I would uh, take a file, and I would file them clean. They become resistors because they get uh, water vapor. They corrode. When they corrode, they become resistors, and you lose, uh, uh, you know, basically you start generating heat there. And I've seen a lot of circulators fail that way. So I would go to all the internal connections, and I would just make sure they're good and clean. uh, And that's going to extend the life of the circulator another good long, good long chunk of time. So uh, the, the first thing to usually go is the, is the bearings on the old ones and the second thing is usually the electrical connections uh, I've had occasional ones not with VWRs but uh, certain old Lauda ones used to have problems with their triacs blowing in which case you need to then be able to uh, replace the triac which is a little more challenging than other things but still possible but that's in general what dies on them is that, is that a good uh, roadmap for you? Yeah, that's great. Exactly what I was looking for Super, right into the blog and tell us how it worked I'm always curious about these kind of things Thanks so much for your call Okay, thank you we have one more? Yeah. No, uh, wait. Let's take a break, I think Jack is saying. Oh, we got to take a break? <laughs> yeah. But the person's been waiting. All right, all right. We'll take a break. We'll be back with cooking issues. Oh, how you feel, brother? Feeling good. You feel good? Feeling good. It's really good. so much bone, brother. How you feel, man? I feel all right. I call your name. I don't want no people to know you're in here. How you feel, brother?
want to do it again. You want to do it again, Welcome back to Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. Today, brought to you by the Barter House. They poured us a nice wine, uh, Jules, which is a Syrah Grenache, and I have no idea where it's from. Uh, call in all of your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. And as I feared, Nastasha, we lost our caller over uh, over the phone during the break. Uh, and uh, one more thing. I have a shout-out shout to the best device ever built. We're in a st- uh, studio that's in basically a working farm in the middle of Brooklyn. So we have a fly problem here, <laughs> right, Nastasha, yeah. in the studio? And they've bought these electric fly rackets, which are about the greatest things, I think, ever invented, no? Mm-hmm. It's the greatest thing ever. It's like, uh, I don't know, it's just so satisfying. It's like, I'm going to kill a fly, see whether you can hear it. On- no, I'll, we'll, we'll try later. Anyway, because uh, <laughs> I have too many questions to get to to, uh, to meander about with uh, electric fly swatter problems. Okay, Red writes in. He says, Dave, uh, I need a recipe for bone-in chicken thighs or legs, uh, time and temperature when you're cooking low temperature. Now, uh, for those of you... I don't know who don't know me or don't know what we do. Low temperature cooking is one of the most important uh, new, when I say new, like past 10 years, kind of ways to cook in uh, in professional kitchens and increasingly in home kitchens. You can now go into Williams and Sonoma, Williams and Sonoma? Williams Sonoma. Williams Sonoma, and uh, buy a, an immersion circulator, which is kind of the best piece of equipment to start doing this kind of work with uh, and do it. Now, uh, <clears throat> the problem is, is that when you put something like chicken and you cook at low, low temperature, by the, you, you're going to want to cook uh, chicken legs around 64 or 65 degrees Celsius, in my opinion, uh, right in that range. I wouldn't do 63. I wouldn't even really do 64 for lies, uh, thighs and legs. I would do uh, I would do 65 Celsius. I apologize uh, for not knowing what that is in Fahrenheit, but uh, you know, use Google. Uh, the um, Here's the main problem. You don't want to do a bone in a chicken thigh or leg in a vacuum or a very high vacuum. And here's the reason why. The inside of bones, uh, chicken bones even particularly, are hollow and they have in them a red uh, kind of gunk on the inside. When you suck a vacuum on, on these things, what happens is that red gunk is pulled out of the bones and goes along the meat near the bone. And then that meat becomes permanently red. Okay, uh, And nobody likes to eat permanently red uh, Chicken meat. They just don't. They don't like it. They say it's not cooked. It's not cooked. I've uh, as a test. I have made it where I've cooked it for a long time at you know at these temperatures that I know are cooked. The texture is cooked. You have people close their eyes. They like it. Uh, they look at it and they just won't put it in their mouth. And this is you know trained people. This is like my family and friends. So you you, know, you really want to be sure not to suck too high a vacuum. The other problem is if you cook very slowly in one of these uh, in these situations, you might still get uh, this phenomenon, what we call persistent pinking. If that happens to you. You're going to have to cook it faster, which means jacking the temperature up a little bit, maybe to like 70, and then only cooking it for like 30, 35 minutes. I do mine at 65, uh, 64 or 65 Celsius for about 45 minutes if they're thin pieces. You don't want to have them all glumped together because you want the heat to penetrate rather quickly. You don't want them to take a long time to get up to temperature because then you're going to have more problems with the red not going away and it's staying red. Uh, so you know, if you have a problem with the, with the red not going away, I recommend just boning them, getting them to go flat, and then you can cook them 
very uh, fairly quickly, and you won't have that problem. I hope that answers your question, Red, and good luck with the uh, with the chicken. Uh, Nastasha just pointed out that the electric fly swatter, which I promised I wouldn't <laughs> talk about anymore, is also a lizard killer, although that seems rather gruesome. It's so horrible. So gruesome. Anyway, okay. Uh, so we have a call. Uh, uh, sorry, a um, uh, what's it called? Question? Email, yeah, question from Nathan. It says, uh, so there's a lot of uh, low temp and vacuum questions uh, having to do with meat, when it's true. There's a lot of like, you know, protein questions. And he has a vegetable question. When he roasts beets, he can never seem to get them to be uniformly cooked. One side is too crispy, the other side is too hard, presumably undercooked, and the whole thing dries out. He tries wrapping it in foil, olive oil, etc., etc. Ovens at 350, ovens at 400. It's all a big, it's all a big nightmare for Nathan, the beets. Well, uh, this is an excellent application of low temperature cooking. What happens when you put, uh, and specifically sous vide, although you could probably do it in a Ziploc. Um, What happens, the whole advantage of putting something in a bag, right, is that nothing gets in and nothing gets out, right? So you're not leaching flavors out, and you're also not evaporating much moisture off the surface of your your product, right? And also, it's it's different from putting it into water, where then the water or whatever cooking medium you're using is actually leaching into the product, right? So... um, what it basically is like is it's like roasting, even though you're doing it in water in a bag. It's like roasting in the sense that you're not um, you're not you know inside of a poaching liquid. But uh, on the other hand, it doesn't get those those roasted flavors. Like it's not going to get dehydrated on the outside. You're not going to get those brown flavors. So what I would recommend for a beet is I would uh, I would peel it, unlike you do. I think the reason you don't peel it when you put it into an oven is you don't want it to bleed out into your oven, and you also don't want it to lose a lot of moisture. And so the skin is preventing that kind of moisture loss. When you're on the uh, – if you heard that pop in the background, that was Nastasha killing a fly with the electric fly zapper. Um, so when you have it in the bag, right, you're preventing that kind of moisture loss. So I go ahead and peel it beforehand because inside the bag, I think you're going to have a tendency for the earthy notes on the skin to kind of get into the whole beat, and I don't think you're going to want that very much. So I would peel it, put it in the bag. You could put any kind of fat uh, in it you want, even up to you know no fat at all. But I would put a little fat in, uh, some sort of you know either solid or liquid neutral fat. I wouldn't use olive oil; it tends to flavor in, the, in like the good quality olive oil that I like for finishing. I don't really like so much when you cook in the bag. And then you can just simmer it in a pot of, in a pot of water. Now the the thing is is that unlike it's not like boiling a vegetable. The times are closer to roasting because there's not a lot of excess water inside the bag to break down the vegetable. That's the whole benefit because it's like roasting. Okay, so what you're going to have to do is, is you're going to have to cook these vegetables simmering in the pot for as long as you would have to basically roast it, sometimes even longer, okay? And so uh, you want to keep it in and keep uh, testing it by pinching with your fingers and seeing where, when it's done. Make sure the sides of the bag don't hit the, um, the side of your pot. If they do, um, you're going to be in trouble. It's going to probably, it might, has a possibility it's going to melt the bag where, where it touches the edge of the pot if flame is licking over the side of the pot. But it's a fantastic technique. Just remember, it's going to take a good long time to do, so be patient. The other good news is it, it's not going to really overcook on the inside of the bag too much, so it's, the timing is not so critical. Just let it go basically as long as you want. Pull it out, and then if you want some of those caramelized roasted flavors, throw some oil in the bottom of a pan and throw it into like a 450 or 500 degree oven just to throw some color onto the outside of your uh, beet, some roasted flavor, and you you're good to go. It's actually an excellent application. Uh, carrots, similarly good. All these kind of uh, root vegetables and things that can be roasted are great inside of a vacuum bag, and it really it keeps a bright, preserved flavor. Not preserved in the preserved sense, but it preserves the bright, clean, pure vegetable flavors that uh, that a lot of us love. So thanks so much for that question, because we definitely should not overlook vegetable cookery uh, when you're doing low temperature. Okay. Uh, now, Brian calls in, uh, and he said he just received the Noma cookbook, and there's a recipe for for um, milk skin, where you add milk protein and milk, uh, 
and cream in a pot and then heat it. Uh, and then you have to take this, the skins off, kind of like what happens in your coffee. And he, and he says the instructions say it's advisable to first remove the few skins that form as they will be fragile and subsequent squint skins will become more and more resilient. And uh, Brian wants to know what's causing this and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And can't he just leave the, uh, the, the thing to form longer to form a thicker skin before he pulls it off? And can he do that instead of removing the first few? No. Uh, <laughs> so this is actually a complicated question, uh, and it's one that I've been interested in actually in a long time, although not in the form of milk skins, in the form of Yuba. So I'm going to talk about Yuba and milk skins and cream skins uh, and, uh, and how they're made and kind of what goes on. So I'm start with Yuba. Yuba is basically uh, you heat soy milk in a wide, shallow pan, and a skin forms on the top, and then you pull the skin off, and you dry it a certain amount, and that's Yuba, or bean, skin, uh, bean curd skin. And this stuff is, I think, delicious. And, you know, I make it at home. Uh, I think it's in- incredibly delicious. And w- what it is, is is that you need, and the same thing happens with milk and cream, if you add milk protein as well, the, the, the same exact phenomenon is happening. You have a, a large surface area, uh, you're heating it underneath. It, the heat needs to be above 60 Celsius, and in practice you want to get it up higher, up near like 80, 90 Celsius, just under the boil. You don't want it to boil, because then you're going to have problems with boil over and uh, with gas bubbling, and you're going to hurt the surface of your skin, because the, the top of the the top of the, of the milk or, or soy milk needs to be relatively placid for a good skid to form. Um, so you heat it. You're partially denaturing the proteins, uh, you know, the, the milk, either the soy or the milk proteins, and they're kind of floating up to the surface where they get concentrated. They aggregate onto fat droplets that are on the surface, and then all of a sudden, as they start evaporating, as they lose moisture because it's heat and you have evaporative cooling coming off the top, they form a skin, and that skin bonds together, polymerizes, and forms a permanent film. In the case of soy milk, it forms yuba, which is a bean curd uh, skin, and in the case of milk, it forms a, a milk skin. Now, most of the time, this is a nuisance to us when we're you know, in our cup of coffee or we're heating milk or something like that, and so you try to prevent it either by uh, putting a, uh, you know, a foam or a froth on top, keeping the lid covered so that, it can't ev- so that moisture can't evaporate, or you know, putting a, some sort of film over the top. But uh, there are a couple of old cases where this is actually done on purpose. So there's something called cabbage cream where you would take very cream-heavy milk and you would, lift, uh, you would lift sheets of it off and then layer it with more cream. It's like an old Elizabethan dessert. You can read about it in Harold McGee. There's very few kind of references to it online. Uh, but Yuba is really the one that's used the most often. Now, the problem is, is that it's actually a complicated phenomenon. It requires uh, different protein concentrations and fat concentrations. So what happens is, is the first couple of ones that solidify are very delicate. They're also higher in uh, protein, uh, and they have a different composition of proteins. As you remove that, the actual chemical composition of the rest of the batch is altered somewhat. And so in Yuba, as in milk skin making, the first couple are, are very fragile, and in Yuba, actually, those first couple are considered the highest grade. They have the least flavor, and they're the most delicate. Right? As you go in and in, you've depleted some of the protein and fat, and so the yuba becomes, or I guess milk skin, although I haven't done as much with milk skin, becomes higher and higher in sugar, and they also become thicker and thicker, right, because the sugar's in milk. So from yuba, you start with a relatively bland, tasteless, high protein with, with fat, uh, you know, skin forming on top, and by the end, you have much thicker, not as strong, red and sweet yuba, which I actually like a lot. So like, the, as you take each successive skin off, because you're changing the, the, the actual makeup of the leftover milk, the yuba itself changes. So it's not enough to just sit and wait for the skin to go longer. You actually want to remove the first couple if that's what the chef wants. And maybe you can use them for something else. And then, um, 
and then you know go from there. If you're interested in making uh, milk skin, I guess read the Noma book, although I don't have it. Uh, if you're interested in Yuba or any form of tofu, which I highly recommend you make at home. Once you start making tofu or go to a really high-grade shop, if you make it yourself, you're not going to want to go back to the crap that's in the supermarkets. Like real tofu, I think, has a flavor. You can control it. I love it. It's fantastic stuff. And when you make it, you just want to eat it, you know, by itself, you don't want to ruin it, and you know, you don't you don't want to turn it into some sort of fake turkey or some sort of BS crap, you know, fake meat analog junk. You just want to eat it for what it is. Tofu gets a bad name because it's misused, and the stuff that we uh, buy has been soaked in so much water that there's absolutely zero flavor of the actual, uh, you know, bean left, and there's just kind of no subtlety to it. You know, you can when you make your own, you can control the texture from almost like a cloud tofu that you could put into soups that hasn't been pressed at all, all the way down to firm tofu. You get the okara left over, which is the uh, which is the pulp from the from the soy, which you can mix into you know muffins or pancakes. You, you get the soy milk, which you can make yuba from if you want. I mean, it's just an incredibly amazing, versatile product that uh, is really fun to work with at home. But it's a mess, so if your spouse uh, is you know make them leave if they don't like messes. Uh, alternatively, have them help you if they like to cook. Uh, so the uh, so. It, the, what you need to buy is go out and buy a book called The Book of Tofu by a guy named William Shirtleaf out of, uh, out of California. He has like the Soy Institute. He himself is kind of a nut – well, I shouldn't say this for me – kind of a nut job. He believes he's going to save uh, – God bless him. I hope he does – save the world through inexpensive uh, vegetable and soy proteins. The, he and his wife uh, – what's her name? I forget her name. Anyway, she, they, they have this Soy Institute, and it's, uh, it, his books are amazing. Don't buy the small abridged ones. Buy the big ones because they haven't been chopped up and the information is there. But the Book of Tofu is one of the all-time great reads on how to make tofu. Don't call him on the phone and ask him whether you can make tofu from edamame because he's like, why would you waste edamame by making tofu out of it? Don't do it. I did it. It was a mistake. I got a stern talking to by the man. But uh, I, highly respect, I highly respect his work. And you can then use what he says about tofu and make all sorts of other curds as well. You can make peanut curds, although they're really like tofu out of peanuts, although it's, and probably also peanut skins, the same way you make edamame skins. But uh, it's uh, more difficult because the fat content is higher. So you might need to dope with, uh, up with protein or else use transglutaminase, a.k.a. meat glue, the chef's friends, which we've spoken about here uh, you know, on several occasions. You can look at the blog, Cooking Issues, get more information on meat glue. But I'm sure you can make a peanut skin by adding a little transglutaminase. So I hope this answers your milk skin questions and we're going to take another break and come back with cooking issues radio call your questions in to 718-497-2128 you know what when i hear a groove like this So down, I need to get down. 
Welcome back to Cooking Issues Radio on the Heritage Radio Network, brought to you today by the Barter House. Call your questions in to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. So I almost missed it, but uh, Brian had a second uh, part of his question. It's actually probably interesting for some of uh, our listeners. He's uh, training in New Zealand, land of legal distilling, by the way. Thank goodness for New Zealand and its legal distillation laws. May we all have your laws someday. Um, he said he's uh, thinking of either going to Australia or uh, the United States to work in restaurants afterwards. He's interested in restaurants here in the, in the states like Townhouse in Virginia, WD-50 in New York, or Moto or Linea in Chicago, and wants to know the best way to, to get into it. Now, he's about to stage at a, at a, you know, kind of a very modern, you know, modern cuisine restaurant called uh, Attica in Melbourne, and wants to know how to get to these other restaurants. The short answer is that uh, if you are willing to work for free in a stage, you can come work in almost any of these restaurants if you set it up far enough in advance and they have space. The best thing to do if you're staging at you know a well-known restaurant like Attica is to because you know all these chefs basically know each other. Like everyone who's in this kind of business, they they know the people that are in their same circle, same group, and and they all extend um, they all extend professional courtesy to each other, whether it's making reservations or whether or not it's taking on cooks. So what I would do is I would bust your behind at this place, just you know, break your back at this place at Attica, right? And then go to the chef or the sous or whoever you're closest to and say, listen, I'm really interested in these restaurants and, and do you know anyone there? And that's the surest way to get into one of these restaurants, much, much, much surer than uh, just trying to cold call or do something like that. And that's really the way this kind of business is done. So when you're in a cooking school, you have all the, the cooking contacts from the cooking school. And then once you're in a restaurant, you have the, the, um, the contacts of that chef. And it's all about, you know, they're going to put their name on the line because they believe in you because you've worked hard for them. And that's how the business works. Wouldn't you say so, Nastasha? Yeah, yes. You know, so, you know, and I know when I send people to restaurants, that's how it is. I say, this person is good, take them on. And they almost always say yes. Or if they really have no space in the kitchen, they say, well, can they wait until X, Y, and Z when I'm going to have some space in the kitchen? But assuming you're willing to work for at least a small amount of time, gratis, then, uh, you know, you, you for free, <laughs> then, um, you know, you can definitely get in. And if you've already had a paid job at one of these places, it's a lot easier for them to send cooks from place to place. It's just, to me, I think that's just the way the business works. Uh, so I hope that's helpful and good luck and choose America. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, um, Ari Del Rosario uh, writes in. He found us via uh, Josh Ozerski's Write Up in Time. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming. Uh, he wants to pester us on some tips for uh, asabuco. Uh, I love asabuco. It's one of the things that my mom uh, used to make growing up. Asabuco is veal shank uh, that's uh, cooked until it's delicious and tender. Um, but he doesn't really want to wait to braise it three hours, and he wants to know. He said, can you pressure cook instead and hope for the same results? You're actually uh, not going to get the same results in a pressure cooker as you're going to get over a slow braise. I happen to think that they're delicious. I like pressure cooking, but it's going to be a little bit different. The meat's probably going to be, the fibers are going to be a little more distinct, but it'll it'll still be delicious. Yes, you can do asabuco in a pressure cooker. It's going to take you, um, on average, if you use second ring, which is 15 pounds per square inch, I would say it's going to take you on the order of 25 minutes. And so what you're going to want to do to it 
adapt your recipe is uh, the, the main problem with asabuco in a pressure cooker is going to be uh, the tomato scorching and sticking on the bottom of the pan that you cook with tomatoes. So you're going to want to maybe have to make the sauce a little bit thinner than you would normally. Make sure it's you know you want to sear off your asabuco, put it in, uh, and you're going to want to um, make sure that it's boiling and you're stirring and boiling before you close the pot, or you might gonna get some scorching from the tomato in the bottom. Uh, so it's not going to be the exact same result, but it's going to be uh, delicious. I believe I've made asabuco in the in the pressure cooker before. Yeah, I think so. The other thing you're going to want to do is don't uh, force vent it because that might dry out the surface and like blow apart the meat a little bit. So let the pressure come down on the pressure cooker naturally and then open it up. And, and he says uh, that he made a variant of asabuco but with Spanish chorizo, chickpeas, carrots, and potatoes. And he said everything went well except the shank was really tough. And, uh, and he said it didn't help that I was rushing. Exactly. You know, when you cook, when you braise a piece of meat traditionally, what happens is, is that until it's finished braising, it's tough, tough, tough because you instantly overcook the meat with the, with the high temperatures. So now you're relying on the collagen breakdown to give it that kind of, uh, tenderness back and, and to make it so like an underbraised piece of meat is going to be dry and tough. And so that's why it seems counterintuitive. But, uh, what happened, you know, what happens is the longer you cook it at that point, uh, until you break down the collagen, then, um, you know, it's going to get it's going to get tender again as the, as the collagen turns to gelatin. It doesn't help to cook it any longer than that. Once you start cooking it longer, it's just going to turn mushy, and eventually, if you boil any liquid out of it, it's going to go dry again. But pressure cooker is definitely the way to go. Uh, and you know, please write in and tell us how it worked. But I'm sure it will work well. Pressure cooker has another advantage, by the way. It doesn't heat up your whole damn kitchen, uh, and it's actually use, it's fairly energy efficient. So it's actually a, a really good way to do it. And asabuco is, of course, one of the great recipes of all time. Uh, okay, Val writes in and said, uh, Val's curious about our opinion on Nathan Mirvold's soon-to-be-released book, uh, Modernist Cuisine. Is that what it's called, Modernist Cuisine? I didn't know that was the actual name of it. Is that the name of it? I guess so. I don't know. Uh, is it worth uh, the price? Uh, also, since you're interested in the best way to do things, what kind of knives do you use and why? And do you use oil or water stones to sharpen them? Okay, these are two uh, interesting questions. The first one that I'm going to talk about is the Nathan Mirvold book. And uh, I guess the question of whether it's worth it uh, depends on how much money you have. Uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, if you have the money, I think it's definitely uh, worth it. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's going to, it's a Herculean effort. It's, um, it's unlike any book that's uh, ever been published in cooking, to my knowledge. Um, it's, uh, you know, it, what's interesting about it is that it's at this, at one time, it's got a lot of uh, technical points, but it's also, uh, you know, got a lot of personal points too. It's got a lot, you know, it's very, it's very personal. Personally written, it's got a lot of personal opinions. So you get a lot of the opinions of, of Nathan and Chris, and uh, and it's uh, you know it's it's unlike any other book. I mean, it, hey, it's good to be a billionaire. You know, like they, they got to do what they wanted to do in this book, and I think that um, you know it's a hundred percent worth the, worth the purchase price. Now, if if you didn't make rent last week, you know, then uh, you know that's a different story. Then you know go go and read it in the library. But if you can afford to go. To uh, I, in fact, when uh, I had a meeting with Nathan Mirvold, and I said, "Wow, you know, it's kind of expensive." He's like, "Well, look, you know, if a cook can afford to go to per se, uh, you know, they can afford to buy the book." And I was like, "You're right." You know what I mean? It's like you know, you're going to learn a lot in the book, and it's, uh, so you know, I think it's definitely worth the purchase price. And if you knew the amount of work that they put into the book, it's probably underpriced. I mean, in terms of the amount of work that it took for them to do it, it's probably underpriced. If you look at the images and what happened, I, there is, 
I, I, there's never been a book made like it, I don't think. What do you think, Nastasha? You saw it. Yeah, I think you're right. The pictures are beautiful. Yeah, and just the work that went into them. You know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, for any of you who have ever had to actually make uh, any images, it's a huge hassle. And, uh, you know, they, they had a rule when they were make, doing the book that <clears throat> any time they bought a piece of equipment, they'd buy two and cut one in half so that they could have pictures for the book. Think about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, yes. So then the second part of this question is, what kind of knives do we like and how do we sharpen them? Oil and water stones. This is an excellent question. Um, there is so much, um, what's the word, crap out on the, you know, out on the web and so many kind of ill-considered opinions on what the best sharpening technique and the best um, best knives and there's so much hype and there's so much hoo-ha um, that it's hard for me to make any kind of actual uh, pronouncements. I will say this. Um, don't compare American grits. Uh, you know, the grit is the size of the uh, – is how they rate abrasives, right? What the grit size is, right? Like so smaller uh, – you know, high, higher numbers like 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 mean finer grit. And if it's rated in microns, then smaller numbers mean finer and finer grit. But Japanese grits, right? Most, most high-end chefs here in, in the U.S., we, you know, they tend to like uh, Japanese knives, Japanese-style knives, Japanese sharpening stones, and those knives are fantastic. Um, but um, Japanese grits and American grits can't be uh, – they're not one-to-one. So don't think that if you have like a 5,000 Japanese stone and then you have like a, a 2,000 or whatever, I don't know, the, the American stone, that you can just relate, relate them that way. Also, how sharp your knife is depends on uh, what you're using it for, okay? So – you know, a knife that you're going to use for aggressive cutting, right, might actually be better not taken to a polished uh, surface because it maintains what they call kind of micro serrations on the microscopic level. Even though it doesn't look serrated at all, it's like little imperfections at the at the surface of the of the edge help to uh, basically break through things like tomatoes that you would otherwise crush as the knife begins to dull, right? Whereas the Japanese style of sharpening is to take it down to a mirror mirror edge, right? Also, whether like so in general, I tend to use and most chefs don't. They, they kind of poo-poo them, but I tend to use diamond stones, specifically these composite diamonds, flat diamond stones made by, I think, uh, uh, we'll, we'll look it up on the blog, but like DMT or something like that or DMZ, something like that, and they're flat uh, with a diamond. I use the fine and the ultra fine, uh, and I like them, and then she- and the, I use them basically dry with, with water, with oil. Um, uh, I, use te- I tend to use water. Uh, you know, chefs poo-poo them, and then they use them, and they're like, damn, my knives are sharp. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, if you're going to sharpen a lot of knives at a time, an interesting system was built by the Edge Pro because a lot of the reason why your knives aren't sharp, it doesn't really matter how good your stone is or how good your knife is. Your hand's not that good. You're not really sharpening the knife properly because you're not maintaining proper uh, contact angles when you're sharpening, right? Or you haven't learned to feel the burr on the edge of the knife. Typically, what you're going to do is sharpen one side of the knife until it rolls a burr over on the edge. Very slightly and you'll feel for that with your finger by dragging along the knife for the burr then you'll turn it over and you'll take that burr off and then you'll progressively go softer and softer and then afterwards I even leather strop it because I find that leather strop is a, is a nice way to kind of refine the edge um, but uh, so the edge pro system uh, is good if you're going to sharpen a lot of knives it's a, it's a little hokey if you're going to sharpen one because you've got to set up this big system uh, I would recommend you learn how to freehand sharpen a knife just by eye but it takes a, it takes a lot of practice You know what particular knife you buy 
it depends on your particular cutting style. If you're used to the German and French styles with kind of a thick bolster on them, you know, stay with them. They're not they're they're not they're not bad. Most chefs I know ship uh, have uh, switched over to Japanese Western style, and Japanese Western style typically have a much much thinner blade that people have become uh, accustomed to now. When you switch to them, if you've never used them before, you're going to get a different set of blisters and calluses on your fingers, and it might hurt for the first couple of weeks that you use them because you're not used to choking up on such a, a knife with such a thin edge in the back. But most chefs that I know now use Japanese Western style blades. What I don't like about a Japanese Western blade is they're typically sharpened more on one side than on the other. And I find it, for me, difficult to sharpen, although most chefs don't have that problem. I don't like it. Uh, the uh, typical Western-style blade is sharpened um, on both sides an equal amount. I either like a Western-style knife or, uh, on the extreme other side, traditional Japanese uh, knives, which are sharpened almost like a chisel, where it just has one bevel edge that's fairly easy to maintain, and then you take it off, uh, off the burr off the back by holding the knife almost flat against your sharpening stone. I find traditional Japanese knives to be incredibly easy to sharpen, and I find you don't need to buy the most expensive ones to have the good time. Go to, go to Corin, uh, K-O-R-I-N, at, you know, dot com. Get their get their house brand of uh of you know original Japanese style uh, knives. Get like a Deba. Get like a, a Yanagi, which is a slicer. And they're not going to break the bank. They're like you know a hundred dollars a piece. And as long as you maintain them, you have to sharpen them almost every time you use them. Uh, they're going to be unbelievable performers for you. And then if you nick the edge because they're fragile, don't cut bones with them, please. You know what I mean? Like, but if you nick the edge. You know, you haven't lost a $500 knife. So if you're going to want to go into Japanese knives, traditional Japanese knives, which I highly recommend, then I would get one of those. But you don't need to listen to all the mystical hoo-ha necessarily. I don't think – I'm going to get a lot of nasty comments about this, about the way – you know, exactly using the right watering stone. If you get one of these new, really good diamond stones and go on, you know, the knife forums and check it out, see what people say about it. Don't take my word for it. Uh, you know, you'll see that they're pretty good performers, uh, you know, if you, if you use them properly. And I sharpen my Japanese knives on them all the time. Uh, so that, that's what I would, that's what I would recommend doing. And one last story before we go, uh, there is a, uh, there's an interesting problem I was thinking about, uh, a bunch of related problems about when going to a restaurant. You ever go to a restaurant and it's really loud? All of a sudden it gets really, really loud all yeah. of a sudden? Yeah. So there's this, uh, there's this phenomenon that was first brought up in 1959, originally called the cocktail party effect, but now called the cafe effect. And, and, but there's actually another problem called the cocktail party problem and another thing called the Lombard effect. And they're all uh, interrelated. And what it is is the, the cafe effect is that you can have a normal conversation with a group of people. More people show up at the party. You can have a normal conversation, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden one more person shows up and everyone starts shouting. Right? Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically it's like this kind of threshold effect where one more one more body shows up and bam, everyone starts shouting. And it has to do with a set of differential equations basically where uh, you know, all of a sudden that little bit, you now talk a little bit louder uh, to be heard. The other group talks a little bit louder. You talk a little louder, blah, 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 until everyone starts shouting to a point where it becomes uncomfortable to shout anymore, and then everyone just moves closer together. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the cafe effect. It used to be called the cocktail party effect, first brought up by a guy named uh, McLean in 1958 or 59 in the Journal of American Acoustics. Dude was clearly joking. I went back and read the paper because he was like, these are just first order approximations, and he was talking about apartments and parties and, and bad guests and stuff like that. So he was clearly having fun with it uh, but it got picked up in, in the literature in acoustics uh, and then got folded into a separate problem called the cocktail party problem which is interesting in physics and interesting to the CIA because the CIA really wants to be able to pick signals out of the air and analyze them so that they can tell what you're doing even if you're on a bunch of other problems and uh, doing a bunch of other things and so the cocktail party problem now if you Wikipedia it what it, what it refers to is 
your ability in a cocktail party to tune out uh, everything else and listen to somebody's conversation, even though there's a lot of competing uh, information in the air. And it relies uh, very heavily on the fact that we have two ears. And so if someone has a hearing deficit in one ear, it's why they have such an impossible time understanding conversation in crowded rooms, uh, which is why you should be nice to them and look at them so that they can <laughs> see your mouth and stuff like that. So, uh, so that's the, the cocktail party problem. And they're all related to something interesting called the Lombard effect. And the Lombard effect is the effect where uh, you instinctively talk louder when people around you are louder. Where you just, it, it's, it's instinctive. And in fact, it's the way people – it's the way uh, experts test to see if you're lying about your hearing deficit. If you start talking louder as, as uh, talking is ramped up around you because it's a reflex. You can't help it. They're like, you're a liar. You're a faker. Anyway, so uh, the cafe effect, uh, the cocktail party effect, and the Lombard effect, three related interesting uh, phenomena that you might notice at your next cocktail party or if the restaurant is too dang loud. This has been Cooking Issues and come back next Tuesday. Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network brought to you this week by the Barter House. Vicious, vicious vodka.